All right. Evan Bliss. Alan Sakian. What's up, my brother? Here we are. So happy to be here. I'm so happy that mm. you were such an important foundational piece to simulation landing wow. in Los Angeles. So thank you. It was a joy, man. You, you came around just around the time I could really use somebody like you in my life. So the, yeah. the, uh, the gratitude is mutual. Wow. Yeah. So honored. Yeah. So. Our tennis has been on fire. Great word for it. I yeah. Agree. Yeah. Our dialectics been gold. Evan's definitely been helping augment my worldview in really important ways. So also that feeling's mutual. Um, the reason why this episode is titled Cannabis Architecture is because you have in the last two years you've built up an incredible design and architecture background and then you you saw an emerging market that's right this is so fascinating a lot of us don't watch the macro level patterns emerging of the market that's coming and then you see it and then there's this big hole that needs to be filled because there's all of these extraction and distillation and growth facilities for the emerging cannabis market that need the proper architecture and design protocols. That's right. Absolutely. And this was beautiful that you saw that. And now it was funny while I was at Evans in this foundational transition to uh, Los Angeles, what happened was I got to see firsthand, I got to go to a facility with you that's right. Which was let's, so, let's not forget that. That's which right. was so cool. I went to a facility with Evan and I saw him in action doing his high level uh, execution of making sure that all of the proper architecture protocols are in place because there's a lot of unique things in the code of law that have to be in place to make sure the facilities are safe and all this type of stuff, which we'll unpack. And also it was cool. There were a lot of people calling Evan. A <laughs> lot of people call Evan it's true. that want to get the highest level insight into how to properly structure their extraction, distillation, build facilities. So he was getting a lot of people that were just calling in that have a lot of money that are <laughs> that are that are building that these. part, that part. And and that Evan is is consulting them. They're relying on Evan to be able to have that high level view. So I love this. That's why the episode's titled this. We're going to unpack this in detail. And actually, Evan even has some great uh, software that he's going to show us of how he actually architects the, um, the the cannabis facilities as well. So we'll get into that. Let's, let's unpack that kind of transition from having this. Uh, Evan and I, for those that want to see also, I think we talk about this in the first episode when we talk about the ethos of architecture. That's right. We had, This is round two, technically, with Evan. And I think we mentioned in that episode, but Evan and I went to high school together at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And Evan was a senior when I was a freshman. And we met, I think, in orchestra first was yeah, the first place that, that we met. Evan was playing violin with Bill Robles. Uh, you're one of your other very close friends. Very good friends. Yeah. yeah. And Alan was a freshman playing the viola. And it was fun because these guys were uh, seniors. It, it was a lot of fun. But that's so we've known each other uh, 10 now 10 plus 10 plus. Yeah. Years we're approaching 15 technically because I was 14 when I came to high school. I'm almost 
29, approaching Jeez. 29. So it's crazy. Wild stuff. So Evan got to go to um, the University of Lincoln in Nebraska for architecture and then to the University of Illinois for master's and then straight out to L.A. for five years. You've been in L.A. doing work. Five close to six. six yeah, years, yeah, probably close to six. So walk us through the and you've been designing really cool stuff in that first episode. You can see we embedded a bunch of the really cool things Evan has designed in the past. You can watch that episode and see it. But let's talk about the transition into cannabis architecture. For yeah, you. let's do that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that great intro, Alan. That was uh, that's one of your strong points, man. I, I feel like you I got to bring you with me everywhere and you'll just <laughs> give me the beautiful red, intellectual red carpet. Um, so I, I agree. Let's talk about transitions. I think what there is to talk about here is both the transition from the type of work I'm doing and also the way in which I'm doing it from a employee versus employer versus entrepreneur status too. right. I mean, really, my transition from doing architecture proper, traditional architecture, you know, houses, offices, multifamily, residential. Um, I've done a little bit of everything, medical, medical, even offices as well. My transition in type of work coincided with my transition to becoming a true full entrepreneur, right? Truly self-employed, you know, backs always against the wall to some degree. I mean, definitely, thankfully at this point, about two years in, there's some momentum. But that last time we spoke, I was kind of on that cusp. I hadn't fully made that leap yet. I was kind of, my toe was in. I was starting to get these these cannabis projects and I could feel the momentum ramping up. And it was clear that this 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 had some potential, but I couldn't quite see yet where it was going to lead to. So um, bless the transition to entrepreneurial roots. I, yes. Yeah. I, I you know, I think we spent enough time together. I think we both kind of understand that idea that probably either of us, we just we just couldn't hack it any other way. We kind of got to be our own got to be in our own lane right and i think we're probably better for it and perhaps the people we deliver our service and our intellectual ip and our words to i think they're better served by us being you know independent creators right yeah so yeah boil it also boils down to a lot of it is the classic rich dad poor dad that's right robert kiyosaki really at the end of the day we have to make sure everybody is inclusively stake held so that we're all generating wealth and ownership and not just selling our time for money. So That's right. it's very important to be a shareholder in uh, wealth engines like brands and businesses uh, and common stock of companies and real estate and make sure to include things like the environment in as an inclusive stakeholder the seventh generation indigenous principle right that type of stuff so all right um can we go ahead yeah. is all right if we riff on that a little bit i I, yeah. I know that that's the thing with you and i alan too i think we've covered such a tapestry of ideas in the time that we spent together in the last few weeks that it's hard not to want to grab some of those points and pull them out right and on a quick footnote to what you're saying um that kind of mentality of owning your your enterprise and owning the creative work that you make and, and also being entitled to the value generation that's created as a result of that, that's something that really came into my purview about a year ago. And it, it was something once I realized it, because um, I never really had any formal training in business, so that wasn't really a, a kind of North Star that I had thought about this idea of 
vertical integration, ownership of the, the full supply chain of whatever physical intellectual property you deliver, right? Because um, in architecture, really, the way it works traditionally is we're really just a consultant along the supply chain, if you will, along the process of delivering a building. And what I, you know, in some ways I was introduced to this idea of, of getting more of the process into your court by listening to hip hop, because that's really something, if you look at hip hop in the last like 10 to 20 years, that's kind of, that's kind of the de facto, this is what success looks like, is when you own your masters, when you own the um, company that makes your t-shirts, you know, you have a clothing line, you have a vertically integrated brand and image that, that you know, it creates a full monetization system around your art. And I, I would say part of what I do is, is grounded in that principle. And that's really, I think the next step for me will be furthering that even more. I, I'm in some sense, I'm kind of stage one entrepreneur where I own this system. I own this kind of organization I'm in, but there's still outside parties, right? Like it, it's a client still comes to me. Um, so I still have to wait for somebody to knock on my door in some sense. Thankfully, right now, there's lots of knocks happening, but, you know, lo and behold, the world is the way it is, and maybe one day there won't be as many knocks. So I'm trying to figure out how can I take some of those cues from hip-hop, from tech, from the business community about how do I kind of create my own business by being both a, instead of just a consultant, a, a, an originator of the content, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm so bullish on certain emerging markets and yeah. one of them is the cannabis and hemp markets as you should be uh, absolutely and we just talked about this also in our simulation los angeles video that we just published a couple days ago as well as that i'm also someone asked me about my thoughts on bitcoin decentralization mm -hmm. I'm also very bullish on decentralization technologies and cryptocurrencies, very bullish on that. And so in a sense, we can on a macro level see these as emerging markets that are massive wealth engines for civilization. They are. And in order for us to properly inclusively stakehold everyone as they become these massive fruits is going to be critical to make sure that we don't just continue the extreme bifurcation of inequality, but rather that we aim to have everyone get wealthy here yes. together uh, in a way that kind of biomimics nature a little bit more closely. So, all right, let's, um, let's sort of see where we're going to head here with, um, these first steps, I would maybe want us to do something along the lines of like, I am have identified now, we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, but that there's basically different codes of law in different mm. countries. So countries are basically like little uh, combinatorics of codes of law. Mm -hmm. And so the United States has a very friendly code of law to entrepreneurs. That's right. And so a lot of people are really excited. That's actually probably the number one thing about the USA that's like better than everything is the entrepreneurial code of law. So a lot of people don't realize that and they should definitely think about it more because they can make a wealth engine for themselves that way. But 
so it's different, for example, for a country that has legalized cannabis in South America versus Europe versus Africa versus Asia versus North America, you're going to have different laws. And so now you also in the U.S. have to do another combinatorial split between the 50 states. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Evans worked everywhere from up and down the coast of California all the way out to Maine. Yep. On the far side, mm -hmm. on the east. So all these different states have different combinatorics of laws that enable the emerging cannabis market to flourish. So you're you have to basically also analyze codes of law across the states. That's right. And then have the basically the building codes that architectural codes that for all of the different i mean you're going to walk us through this but just the last week when i went with you mm -hmm. you know you guys were like we're going to have to put up a dozen of these massive what were they called on the roof those well, those would be uh condensers condensers yes. and those weighed like 600 condensers pounds were, so or something four to four to six hundred pounds somewhere in that range and so yeah. basically if you're going to put 12 four to six hundred pound condensers on the roof you really need uh, strong I was looking this up the trusses you know the trusses and you have to be able to distribute the weight from those points so that that's right there's safety so walk us through what it's like seeing all of the different combinatorics of like the United States cannabis emerging and working in the different markets but also kind of fielding in the calls from the clients about we want to do this I think you were telling me that mm. extraction is the vast majority right now of your cannabis architecture and work is that that's correct? right okay so walk us through yeah well i i want to riff on um i actually think maybe a good intro to this is talking about the difference between states because i think what's happening with the cannabis legalization rollout in the u.s is a great case study in the states as laboratories of democracy right and laboratories of different iterations of structuring laws around different ideas you know i mean that's I think that was a fundamental idea that the founding fathers had, right? You know, there's this idea of a connection, a federal government that's kind of this umbrella that has certain laws in place that extend in every direction for every state, and then kind of utilizing each state as a way to test different ways of running their local governments, right? And that's happening in a really real way with cannabis, right? Because it's this completely new frontier. Um, it was rolled out in a couple states you know, early on, and they have become, in some ways, the definers of how all these other states will interpret everything from, you know, the licensure process for folks to get a license to be a, a business in the space. Um, definitely in my, in kind of my domain, in my territory, the way that each building department will look at code reviews for, you know, cannabis-related facilities. So California, Washington, Colorado, they're the pioneers, right? And and yep. obviously for me, I know the most about how California's approached it. And I still think in some sense they're kind of the market leader. Um, they're, I mean, I've heard stories about, you know, small city in, in trying to think somewhere that has legal cannabis that's kind of just coming up. Um, you know, somebody in a, in a small city in Michigan, they'll call the city of Sacramento, they'll call um, Oakland, that's, that's and they, they got to get the rundown on how we, somebody's, these plans just showed up for this cannabis facility. What in God's name is this? Like, we don't even really know how to evaluate this. It's so new. It it has some precedent. You know, I mean, there's, there's uh, 
other biological cultivation facilities where you might grow flowers, you might grow tomatoes. There's other forms of industrial production where you're making distillates, um, you know, by, what would you say, botanical extracts. I mean, you can extract the scents from flowers. You can extract essential oils from um, other plants. So it's not as though there's there's no precedent for this stuff, but it's, it's, it's to use your word, it, it's in the nuances where things get get uh spicier i like what you Um, said about how it's as though there's people from michigan that are seeing the emerging market of the cannabis architecting occurring and they're they have to do mimesis as Mm. Rene gerard would say of sacramento yeah i love that that's so cool yep well it's interesting too because they need to say it happens on multiple levels because there are codes on the books that just are what they are, right? So to go into a little bit of a technical direction, um, generally speaking in the United States, the state building codes are are generally based off what they call the IBC, the International Building Code. So they're just, they'll take that codified book of, I, I forget how many chapters, but and then they'll they'll add certain amendments uh, per state that you know have to do with there might be particulars of the climate in that area or, or something some other modification that that you could justify for that region. But once you kind of know generally how to navigate through the IBC International Building Code, it means I can pu- pull up the Florida Building Code, the California Building Code, and and, and at least kind of know what up from down, right? Mm-hmm. So there's those rules, but then there's also kind of there's the interpretation level, right? Of, of the hermeneutics. Yeah, I mean, how do you application? You know, I mean, and every building department's gonna focus on different things. That's you funny. You, even though there's the interpretations, you'll still have the fire marshal visiting. Exactly. Well, yeah. right. I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not. It's it's an art and a science as much as we would. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the art's kind of the political part, where you know what kind of. The thing I noticed, frankly, is is does this jurisdiction want a cannabis project in their city? Mm. And there's some, of, and that's where the political spin can come, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. they can. How much are they trying to catalyze it themselves? That's a great way to yeah. put it. And some are really gung ho. I mean, Especially I will tell the you, the ones that understand the emerging market, because the more that you understand it, the more you realize it's a wealth creation engine for your city. Yeah, couldn't put it more concisely. And and I'm seeing that a lot actually in my more recent projects here in California. A lot of these kind of desert cities that don't necessarily have a well-established industry anymore that would love the cash flow, the, the tax dollar influx of a really high growth um, industry. So they're kind of accepting the cannabis and hemp industry with with open arms. Yep. You know, I'm Desert Hot Springs, Ad- Adelanto is where I have multiple projects. I mean, they're they're all for it they're all for it i mean it's great for their tax base it gives people jobs i mean and i mean frankly i think most of this these this product you can feel good about because i I, with the risk of going too much left field i mean i i think we all kind of understand at this point that there are some clear benefits health-wise to this product to cannabis and and cbd right so i i don't think it's it's maybe a little bit different than the way you would think about another liquor store or bar opening in your town. I think there's just, there's an edge to that. I think we, we understand alcohol has a certain um, socially questionable impact in some 
cases. Um, I can I can hit the spectrum because right? we've had yeah. at the New West Summit, which you came to, which right. was which was awesome. <clears throat> we've partnered with them the last two years to do partnership interviews. They're the world's leading cannabis tech conference. On one side, you have people that we've we got to interview on the program there, um, where you have these rare clusters of diseases where you're literally only. Um, one out of a couple dozen people on the entire planet that have this and that there's nothing that traveling from hopping around the world to different world-renowned physicians trying to make sure you don't die at the age of like 16. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that helped out after all of the world physicians tried everything and couldn't figure it out was a massive dose of hemp CBD uh, daily. And so all of a sudden, the rare cluster of diseases went away, you know, hairs growing back, um, yeah. the, the super hardcore pain in the arthritis type things in the hands of for like 16 year olds is gone on one side of the spectrum. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have all of the recreational use of cannabis. And so if you're striving to be an entrepreneur, but you're waking up every day at, you know, 9am and wake and baking, and then you're, <laughs> and then you're also smoking in the afternoon at two, um, you know, it, are you, you know, the question to ask yourself is, is that are you really catalyzing your entrepreneurial success by doing that? That's a great question. And so there's these two sides of the spectrum. And then in alcohol is the same thing. You and I are very familiar with the Balmer peak with alcohol. Yeah. Yep. So you can make fascinating to me. Yep. Yeah. You can microdose alcohol to a very small extent to where you're actually uh, decrease your uh, your inhibition. Yeah. Your anxieties for socialization. Um, We've heard of many people that have successfully attained uh, world-renowned breakthroughs in fields like mathematics under a little bit of alcohol, things like that. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and on the I other like side of the spectrum is where you said um, the other side of the spectrum on alcohol is where you're going to the bar, you're having six drinks, um, yeah. you're you're getting uh, blackout intoxicated, you're doing one-night stands, you're um, and that's a that's a whole. Uh, you, you might be more have a higher proclivity to be violent. Um, there's all of these drinking and driving. Be very, very vigilant with that. Yeah. So on a side note on the cannabis conversation, that's a very important um, point. But you're right that you're going to have places that are constantly trying to uh, either, you know, if you're hyper conservative and you absolutely don't want um, the advancement of the emerging market, you're gonna, you're actually missing out on what could be a multi-million, if not approaching tens of million or hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. for your uh, city, plus all of the not just money, but also the um, inclusive stakeholding, like we talked about the me the medicinal benefits. Um, on a recreational side, there's also potentially an uptick in creative strategy that can occur from small doses. So there's a lot of things yeah. that spur up the the, these cities for ones that can try and become more open to the new emerging market coming, coming. Absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I think it was worth going down this tangent we went just did is because it kind of solidifies something I know you and I both agree on. And that is that we must be ethical in business and we must be ethical in the things that we create via our business. Right. And yep. I think, no matter how lucrative being in cannabis is, if, if you're doing it right, you know, if you kind of happen to catch a wave in it and perhaps get the right contacts, the right opportunities, I, it's such a wave. But 
you know, at the end of the day, if I didn't really believe on a very fundamental level that this wasn't, that this was a positive product, if I, if I even had some degree of reservation, like it, it would be tough. Yeah. Right. To really have this be such a core part of my design business yes. if it wasn't really something I believed in. And I know some people Amen. can suspend that, but Amen I, to your ethos. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely want to make the case for that. And I think most people that are cannabis or cannabis adjacent feel similarly like they Agreed. you kind of have to buy. Yeah. Agreed, you yeah. kind of have to buy in. Right. You have yeah. to say, I'm going to we can steer the ship towards the more positive light direction. Yes. Yeah. The positive light direction it, it as a therapeutic, as a positive life enhancer and it also has something we think is going to have a net benefit for humanity if i think yeah. for most people there i don't you'll find the occasional person who's clearly you know they're just kind of it sounded like a gold rush or it sounded like a cash cow so they jumped in they didn't really vet the ethics yeah. for themselves personally but I yeah. think it's an important step. And the that. same thing happened with the emerging decentralization and cryptocurrency market since Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper in 2008. You had a massive uh, gold rush since approximately 2016-ish where people got involved without any sort of foundational ethos. And that's the core thing is you join into the yeah. emerging market with the recognition that you are steering the ethos of that emerging that's market right. and you and you're trying to do it towards positive light, benevolence, inclusive stakeholding, love, that kind of stuff. This is and this is something that we'll probably get into on in our next conversation on um, more of the philosophical things. But if you yeah. start with the spirituality the morality the ethics the enlightenment if you start with trying to channel christ buddha confucius mm. Lao Tzu, the gods of the world if you try and channel them and start with that everything downstream that you touch business-wise entrepreneurship-wise science-wise um friendships uh relationships um uh, children, everything you touch downstream, if you keep in mind that first principle of trying to keep the highest possible morality and spirituality, the other things downstream uh, unfold well. So we'll, we can, we'll chat on that more in our next conversation. I agree. Do you, do you think that um, within the, I always like to ask in terms of power law in like, <laughs> so in cannabis architecting, we have this power law. And so we're going to say that, you know, what is the most, you know, the phone calls that you're getting most, what is the protocols that most people want you to architect in cannabis? So it's, you know, extraction. Yeah. This type of stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I could, in some ways I have yet to be just really clear about what I'm doing. Let's and do it. So here it is. So, so my company now, I would say 90% of the work I do, and you know, I'm trained as an, I studied architecture. I have an undergrad degree in architecture, a master's in architecture, practiced at various architecture firms five to six years. So I have, you know, deep domain expertise in that. But really what we've become is almost a cannabis specialty design company. And with it, with a really ex exceptional focus on extraction. And what extraction is, is it's, it's, so I think usually when you say cannabis industrial production, people are thinking grow up, right? They're thinking a greenhouse where you're growing the plants, which is typically referred to as cultivation. So yep. that's one thing. And definitely here in California, that's, I mean, prior to the legal market existing, I mean, that was already very robust and like just people growing cannabis, right? And the then, Emerald Triangle. Yeah, exactly. That's north, right. Yeah. 
That's right. And I've done some work up there. But, you know, when it became legal, both recreationally and medicinally, um, the first move business owners went into was growing, right? So just like any industry, when it's fresh and it's new, like there's those opportunities at the beginning to be the first mover and really capture large market share, which I think happened. But somewhere around and, and granted, I, I haven't I'm not somebody who's been in cannabis for 10 years, so I can't really I can't tell the story with that depth of knowledge. But I will say that I know in the last two to three to perhaps even four years, there's been this kind of shift to people rushing into the extraction space because cultivation has been so saturated. So what's powerful yeah. that that that's it. What's what's powerful wow. about extraction is it's so it's the saturation of the cultivation space that created the forcing function for people to want to get into the extraction space. That's yeah, super interesting. I mean it, in some sense in some sense Alan um Cannabis flour is just another commodity, right? It's it's in some sense it's no different than corn, right? I mean corn, corn isn't highly differentiated. There isn't you know between brand A and brand B. There's you know a, a, a near imperceptible, arguably difference. It's 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 co a commodity by economic mm -hmm. standards, and and cannabis in some sense is becoming that too. I mean not to say that there of course there's kind of boutique or or bespoke or you know very specific genetics that are charge a premium price and have special branding behind it but in terms of the typical flower product that that market's kind of flattened out and in some sense wow. is a commodity so you know wow. the solution is to that is that you have to innovate right and though i wouldn't necessarily call extraction an innovation because it's that idea has existed for a long time it's existed as probably ancient you know it, it, it really originates with hash right which is a, yep. a purified form of, of cannabis from the middle east mm -hmm. Um, but the way it's done in a modern context is um, very simple. You're you're purchasing what they call biomass, which is bulk, kind of usually kind of the leftover materials, typically probably a lower concentration of THC or CBD or another cannabinoid than you would find in the flour that would be produced for direct consumption. So there's this kind of there is a I suppose an economical argument there. You're 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 creating a valuable product out of something that perhaps would have been in yeah. some sense waste or is not as valuable. So what you're doing is you're you're taking that in, in the kind of the, the most basic sense, the process works this way. You're 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 putting it in a centrifuge with with super chilled solvents, which are, you know, butane, ethanol, pentane, um, what else do we have? I mean, it, 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 a number of different solvents, and what and you whip that very fast in the centrifuge. Kind of, it's like, frankly, like a washing machine. Like, imagine putting green organic materials in a washing machine with solvent. You know, it's kind of a bizarre thing. You wouldn't see this in any other context. These but are big washing machines. Big they potentially are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, some of them get very large. But yeah, we're talking like garbage bags full of biomass, like containers full of biomass that are like you know, huge, like the size of a human body and stuff like that. Like these are, there's a be. lot of biomass. Yeah. 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 But what you're doing is you're, you're creating, you know, you're, you're whipping that around and you're, you're, you're extracting the, the solvent is, is kind of pulling out those cannabinoids. Right. Mm -hmm. And then once you've ran that process, you're running a series of purification, distillation operations on it to make, you know, as pure of a end product as possible. And then that oil. So, is, so, um, so we, in the centrifuge, you have the 
solvent connecting with the cannabinoids and then as they're extracting out the cannabinoids from the biomass yeah then that process undergoes a distillation where you have to extract all of the solvent out and keep only the cannabinoids in the final product so it's hyper concentrated cannabinoids in right the final well product. that's the other part they call that solvent recovery is that process where they you know essentially pull that all out so you don't end up with a product that I mean, perhaps, yes. you know, and it's something like parts per million or billion. It's something really high where you can't have more than a certain threshold of solvent. Right. Trace yeah. amounts Trace of solvent amount. remaining. Yeah. Um, and, and I will I will say for sure, I'm when it comes down to the nitty gritty of the process, um, I, I wouldn't be the first person to I'm not as well versed on that facilities planning, permitting code as it relates to these machines is really where my expertise yes. at this point lies. Yes, I mean, yes. okay. there's definitely people that could give you a, a much more yes. comprehensive level of, you know, if yes. you're actually a lab technician there every day doing the thing, yeah, you know, there's, there's yes. a really nitty gritty version of it, but yeah. Yeah. from a high level, what I just Let's described yeah. is effectively it. But, and so then, and then walk us into the next. So the centrifuge. So now is there usually something that the, the clients inquiring with your process that they ask about what the architecture designer has to do for that first sort of uh, you can like envision it as a modular component of the actual extraction facility is that centrifuge so like what do you have to prepare for that as an architect and designer first and then i guess we can go to the next modules yeah yeah okay. yeah so i mean i have um even though in some sense my individual company in the scope of doing them on a floor plan, you know, based off our knowledge of how process flow works with use of the equipment, based off our knowledge of fire protection design, Interesting. Um, and just kind of laying out, you know, where, where do the parts and pieces go? Um, okay. And then Interesting, yeah. So, a, so after the, the centrifuge section, the, you, there's, so there's the architecting and designing of that component of the floor plan, and then there's the next components of the distillation and removing the solvent there's these components and it's very in a sense there's these condensers on the roof and like so you have to make sure that you know so i guess one of the first things is the floor plan yeah do we want to do the visual now like the software would that be good timing or do you want to what would it be good to show the software and the visual how stuff? about when we transition at the end of this little Bit, and okay. then to the booth, and okay. then I think we can okay. pull it up. Sounds good. Um, okay. Because the bulk of my work and it starts when we've ended the kind of schematic design where we've proper drawings and specifications that we need that I include in my package of goods that I submit to cities. It's It really comes down to them having the right things for me, the right raw materials yeah. and yeah. information so that they can produce their work. So, um, so okay, so just that, like envisioning. So I'm coordinating the dance. Yes. Yeah. So there's Choreography. this. Choreography. Yeah. There's the conductor and the, as Evan, as the center node that is uh, taking the, the client's uh, desire for the distillation facility. And then Evan's connected to other nodes that do the plumbing electrical mechanical mm -hmm. and they have to f so you guys kind of go and 
do site visits and you have, they feed you the their data packages about the entirety of the floor plan design and then you plug it into your you as the center node that feeds the data and the final design to the city yeah okay and then the city then is like okay everything is here so we're not going to be worried about <laughs> like catastrophic issues occurring so because of that the city approves mm -hmm. and then the process of the formation uh towards the distillation facility can actually be prop uh, executed so then that's really kind of the core of you as the orchestrator node and then the uh, the conductor node and then the other members of the orchestra that the symphony that help um, put together that package that then goes to the city that they confirm for the cannabis architect to actually be. yeah okay okay and i think it, it it in that way of working definitely i think suits you know to go on a, a mild tangent as well that that way of working def what areas require with extraction what areas require explosion proof environments because Jeez. when you're doing this stuff with solvent man when you're whipping solvent around and 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 cannabis around inside this giant washing machine you know there's vapors that can make their way out into space and you know if there's a high enough concentration in the area that any spark goes off you know imagine one of these lights or somebody flips a light switch or their phone gets a notification and the circuit goes off i mean it could send something up right so that's really kind of where the rubber meets the road for me Holy and God. how i was yeah. able to start doing more of this was understanding what this explosion proof environments side of the design was wow okay so okay so one of the main keys of distillation facility architecting is explosion proof um explosion management in of specifically uh ensuring that there's no oh my gosh like l tiny leakages of 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 solvent that can then get sparked and, and explode so then th is that the booth that's right okay that's oh, right okay, okay so basically okay. so uh, perhaps this might be the right, the right moment time? to, to let's, do okay, it. let's spin around okay. a little model i think Excellent. you know i mean i think it's fun to listen to somebody talk about this we're but about to get the visual I, I mean, we're all visual right we're, we're all, all visual. visual people so excellent actually putting putting a visual putting a visual to a uh to a word is, is a, a valuable thing yeah so, okay we're here all right so now you guys should have a now first let's start with what is the name of the software is this autodesk uh so autodesk is a manufacturer and they're okay. they're they've been around for 30 plus years yeah. they're kind of the gold standard for an architecture engineering software autocad was their first yep. product you know that yep. kind of changed the world of drafting and design but this particular software is uh, Revit, which this is Revit. It's an Autodesk product. That's right. Okay, Revit. Yeah, and Revit is probably maybe it's got to be about fifteen years old, somewhere in that range, fifteen to maybe even coming up on more now. Okay, um, but it was kind of a it was the next leap forward. So, uh, without going too much into detail, I yeah. think our actually our last conversation, our last talk together, we spoke a little bit about this software in particular, but. What Revit has over something like CAD is it's 3D modeling, number one. So you're not just looking and imagining something as lines on paper. It's actually volumes. It's actually things in space. But it's even beyond just 3D modeling. It's 
in some 3D softwares, when you model a sphere, that sphere doesn't have any properties or any materiality or any meaning to it until you assign meaning. But in Revit, it's what they call building information modeling, meaning that you're almost kind of building more like a kit of parts where right. when you draw a wall or when you model a wall, it actually is a wall and you can select, mm -hmm. you know, is this a, a CMU block wall that has, you know, that's eight inches thick that has, um, you know, some sort of reinforcement behind it. Is it a, a, a gypsum light metal framed interior partition that has, you know, R13 insulation inside it? Like it, it'll automatically default to some of those properties and those properties can also be tweaked. So Interesting. It, 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 there's, so there's a higher concentration of data, data yeah. in the component parts in, that you can embed in Revit versus the more generic CAD. Yeah, and, and, and it just there's, there's some efficiencies that occur there because it used to be with CAD, when you would draw one drawing, you had to, all that information that you placed on that drawing, you had to represent if you're doing it cutting a section vertically and looking at the building vertically, all those notes and all that information that you apply to that, that has to be re-represented when you do another drawing that shows the building from another angle or another cut. Whereas Revit, um, you embed that information. So when I cut something differently, show a different view, a lot of that's already just fed in. I love it's that. already there. Yeah. So it's just an incredible efficiency Excellent. time saving. Yeah, yeah. I love the benefit of advancements in software those th yeah. that's for simplicity of creativity and fire codes and uh, all this type of stuff is super important it's, it's just an enabler it's an yeah. enabler yeah yeah all right let's do and we could go down there's other do rabbit holes i could go with revit but yeah, perhaps let's, let's let's see what's going on with this all right so um so what we have here i mean i think in some ways this is a great archetypical representation of these cannabis projects i do because kind of what you can see right away is that this is just a big, 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 open, empty space. Um, this, I mean, this warehouse, gosh, I'm trying to think. How big is it again? This is the 100,000 um, square foot one, or is this? No, no, this probably, I mean. 50? Maybe, maybe, let's say maybe it's about 50. Maybe 50,000 50, square, square feet. feet. Don't quote me on that. Ish. But, um. Wow. We're doing a portion. We're doing a portion of this space and turning it into... An extraction operation. So, but so those, so those um, on the left right now, where it looks like those doors are opening, those are the uh, the metal booths. That's those are those modules of where it's doing the safety explosion management is in those. Well, in this particular instance, actually, those. Um, so the client already had shipping containers inside. They're just using these for processing rooms, processing like for work rooms. rooms. Oh, okay, okay. So. The, these thing, these long skinny guys that you're seeing here, yeah. in this case, actually aren't the boosts, but they look very similar. Um, oh, okay, okay. So, but in terms of a typical project, this is usually how it works out. Like, client comes to me, uh, they've got a big, you know, they've got a warehouse, big or a small, empty warehouse, and they want to build out a laboratory facility. So, it's in yeah. in our industry what they would call a tenant improvement, meaning that mm -hmm. it's a, a raw tenant space, and then we're improving, you know, we're building things inside to improve the functionality, improve, yes. bring it up to an occupiable space. So, yes, yes. Um, this particular project is, I would say, on the bigger side. I mean, there's a lot of these things that we're building inside, um, as compared to some where we might just even build, you know, one or two rooms, but. 
Yeah, what are the different components you're building inside? Can you sh can you run that run us through that? Yeah, so in some cases, in some cases, some of this is not terribly different than what you would find in any other industrial or office project. Um, we're just, you know, we're kind of building box rooms inside. Um, yeah. So these rooms right here are actually just built out of typical uh, gypsum studs and framing. Okay. Um, so it's just what you would see, you know, the typical drywall that you would find in a house, in okay. an office, any kind of normal space. It's just white, flat. Um, it's got light metal framing under it, so just typical studs, and then a gypsum ceiling. Um, and that's kind of just the work rooms. Okay. Those serve as the spaces where you don't have classified equipment that needs explosion proof yep. uh, Got it. treatment environment. Okay. okay. Um, so that's just where we're doing things that don't have that volatile aspect to them. And then where are the spaces that have that volatile aspect to them? Yeah. In this case, they are these, uh, they are these bigger boxes over here. And. Oh, yep. Yep. Okay. I see. I see. And so what I'm going to do is show another 3D view where I can kind of cut away at these a little more. Uh, okay, cool, cool. So the way that I approach doing these projects as well from a architectural and a documentation standpoint is that even though BIM has this aspect where you can, in theory, model everything, we kind of model the essentials and then hack the rest in the drawings. And what I mean by that is like there's a level of detail that we create in 3D that at least creates the framework for where everything's at and you know where all the equipment's at, how high the ceilings are, how high the roofs are, where the structure is. But what we'll do is we'll cut away different views and then we'll annotate those views with more detail. So what I'll show you after we cut away in one of these booths is I'll show you um, actually like a drawing sheet where we show the actual construction details of one of these booths inside. So, okay. Um, but to just kind of give you an idea, this, if we cut into one of these booths here. So oh, right, I see you're giving us the interior. So right now. Of those explosion proof booths. Yeah, modules. so both these guys here, both these booth here, both booths here are um, built of 18, well, one is built of 18-gauge steel. The other... 18-gauge steel. It's wow. actually, re actually relatively light. Wow. It's actually not, not terribly thick. Wow. 18-gauge um, steel, very easy to ship out and assemble on site. Um, okay. And in, in theory, kind of what these booths are is they're almost like giant spray booths, right? Like if you've ever done spray painting and yeah. you've, you know, it's kind of like a table that has yep. a ventilation mm -hmm. mechanism at the top that sucks up. Mm -hmm. You know, all the overspray, right? Because yep. you don't want to be huffing paint, paint yep. while you're, you know, painting your crafts or your, your coffee right. table or whatever. You don't want to be huffing solvent in this case. And so, definitely not. And so, that's definitely being not. so. Then these have a, a component to them that takes and sucks out the solventy, potentially air out of them and brings in fresh air. Both. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, okay, it's, cool, it's, cool. it's, I'll answer that question first. I like that question. So okay. the, the fundamental way that this operates is it is this big box, and then it's got these little boxes on the end, right? These kind of like this part right here, right, where we've created this cavity. We've created this cavity 
um, that's referred to as a plenum um, in mechanical engineering. And you have that on both sides, right? You have this plenum, which is just a gap between the outside wall of the booth and this inside wall. Okay. And what's happening there is that's a place for air to be sucked in or to mm. be spit out. So mm. okay. what's going on as this booth would be built is that you have on top of this box, you've got two fans, one on one above this plenum and then one above the other plenum. And mm. what these fans do is they essentially create continuous ventilation in a linear way, long ways across the booth. So okay, during typical operation, those Got fans it. are usually going to run at um, fan speed. They call 15, 500 CFM, mm -hmm. 500 CFM. Uh, which is kind of a you know a moderate speed, but it's enough that it keeps fresh air coming in continuously. And what's going on is those fans are ducted directly to the outside, so which they have to be. You know, we have to have a way to get fresh air into this this you know this box where all this wacky stuff is happening with solvents and yes, where there's yes. the potential yes. for this gases to build up in the air. You got to you got to kind of keep a continuous flow. But what happens in what they call a purge instance, so in the case that there's a detector inside this, and in the case that that detector senses that there's an inordinately high concentration of solvent, butane, ethanol, in the air, you know, parts per million, or um, there's different metrics by which you would measure that. But if the detector sees that, or it... it it, it detects that, then it'll kick on those fans to a high speed, typically 1,500, uh, 2,000 CFM. Interesting. So it's dynamically adjusting based on the PPM potentially of solvent in the air. Exactly. Um, its speed is being adjusted to that. So you have what would be like an outflow of air and an inflow of air going into the Module. Exactly. It's okay. just continue okay. continuously cycling through. Okay. So then these have to be very these have to be placed close to the exteriors of buildings then. Typically. Yeah. Um so you can do it two ways to provide that ventilation. You can either uh in this case of this project because the ceiling is so high, we're taking the ducts out the side of the exterior wall. Um Okay. And this, I think this will, could potentially help you understand a little better. This is what they call a section drawing in architecture, which is, you know, if you were to cut, just take a cut down yep. vertically through the building and then just look into it, you know, yep, yep, like yep. straight on, dead on. Yep. You end up with this kind of imaginary cool, cool. theoretical view, right? So what we're seeing here is a cut through those extraction booths and like I was saying, there's data here that we've added that's not modeled in 3D, like these ducts, right? I'm only showing them in 2D in this instance. Yep, yep. And the fans as well. And I'm showing them kind of schematically. Um, but from here, you can get an idea of how that concept works, right? You have the fan that's mounted directly on top of the booth. Um, it's just going to suck. It's going to suck the air up into it on one side. Um, and then it's going to bring fresh air in on the other fan on the opposite end, right? So that yep. you get that continuous airflow. Um, using fresh outside air and just to be just to be um, clear this is the kind of number one most important aspect to your work in uh, 
cannabis architecting, especially distillation facilities, especially the explosion safety. Is that correct? Is this kind of like the yes, number sir. one? Yes, okay. sir. This is where okay. definitely where to use the, the okay. kind of a cliche. This is definitely where the rubber meets the road with yeah, these. Okay. This is kind of the core element. Like everything else with the design of these facilities flows around that. Like Interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know? So this is really the hub that the basically the city wants to make sure that this. You nailed it. Okay. Is up to par. Yeah. And this is where I really had to nail down and double down and become an expert in how this works and what codes I need to be conscious of to make sure that we're designing this space, that we're documenting this space in a way that shows all those critical metrics that the city is going to look for. Because what this is, I, I, I don't think I've actually said the term yet, this is what they call a class one, division one um, hazardous material environment. Class so, one is highest? Is that highest class or...? It is, yeah. Class, there's classes, yeah. and then there's divisions, and those are, you know, yeah. I, they go down. I believe through three. There's, right. there's one through three in class, and then one through three in divisions. And you said this is class one, division one. Yeah. Okay, so this is very sensitive environment. So it needs to be the precision level with the codes need to be very high. The yeah. City is really looking at this to make sure you've nailed it. Yeah. That's right. Um, and they want to make sure that everything inside this is explosion proof because yep. that's that's what really certifies a space to C1D1, class one, division one, is that every electrical component inside ha is spark proof, right? Spark proof electrical components inside. Like we spoke about earlier, yes. you know, I was kind of saying the phone, like what if you get a notification and then it, yeah. it triggers a spark and then it sends everything up, right? So do you have to buy specific uh, electrical equipment that is spark proof you do you do okay so here's where we can kind of go into the innovation and 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 so like i said before this is a team effort this isn't i'm just a part of this puzzle you know i have my own company that specializes specifically in taking that kind of initial design you know where are the parts and pieces where do all the machines go you know what boost do we need how much how big do we need the boost to be to fit all the machines? Source explosion proof um, outlets on the wall for any equipment you got to plug in in this thing. Wow. And so you got to get that right, right? Yeah. You got to nail every component of this. You know, it's got to be certified, it's got to meet the engineering standards. And then you have to document that well enough in your plans and in your engineering reports that you can communicate that to a jurisdiction that would be approving it. So trust me, I mean, there's a lot of potential pitfalls along that journey if you're going to try to build your own one of these, right? Yeah. So where the innovation comes in, C1D1 Labs, the company that makes these boosts, they ah. said, hey, why not make a turnkey solution? Why are we reinventing the wheel every time? Why can't we just have a product that we ship out and it's got everything, right? It's got, it's got the exit signs that are explosion-proof. It's got the switches. It's got the electrical. It's got the 18-inch explosion-proof fans that can accommodate the 500 CFM up to 15 or 20, uh, 2000 CFM. It has the control panel that coordinates and all those components together so that when the gas detector triggers, it knows to increase the fan speed, right? Yep. So interesting. The, it's so a turnkey solution. Turnkey solution, C1D1 Labs. That's right. That's super and interesting. And I give a pitch. I will. Give a plug. definitely give a plug to them. They yeah. deserve a plug. Yeah, so that's a hell yeah. Good company. It'd be fun to bring on uh, someone that 
is uh, one of the founders or something like that onto the show. Talk to, I talk to him very frequently. That, that'd so be a lot of fun because yeah. that's that's an interesting way to, like you said, if like twenty years ago or whatever you had so many people going and trying to individually source the different uh, electrical components that were explosion proof and that would just be a nightmare to now be able to go to c1d1 labs and to say i'm building a distillation facility and then it's just like click and drag and drop basically and well, and, yeah. well I know in, in a best case scenario i'm not you know, best, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, i'm not gonna pretend that the, yeah. i mean and the thing is there is a gap and like i said where i kind of come in is that gap between okay we've got the booth and we've got the explosion proof components like this unit of it we've got but how does that fit into and connect to everything else infrastructurally totally. with the yes. building? And yes. that's where I, that's kind of my domain expertise. It's like when you do you know. click and drag before you drop, you have to work with the architect and designers to make sure that uh, when you do drop, that everything is going to be flawless in yeah. the, because otherwise the city just won't approve it anyway. So, it's kind of like yeah. bronze. I would say in some ways it's kind of like dropping. If you're, if you're into computers, I used to do that stuff when I was a teenager, but if you've ever built your own computer, it's like when you drop the processor into the motherboard, right? Yeah. So what I'm doing is the motherboard circuit layout, and then this this booth is is the Boom. the processor. The, the Great Intel. analogy, yeah. Great so. analogy, yeah. So it's it's funny because architects are then like the motherboard, and then the components um, are like the C1D1 labs and mm -hmm. all the other components that you drop in. So that's super. That's a that's an interesting analogy. Um, we'll probably talk about this more in the more philosophical uh, second convo. But um, I love how what C1D1 Labs did mm -hmm. is very much so like what you were teaching me about the you know I love the ninety percent of all world trade happens by sea in yeah. barges, but that um, before the innovation that was made by what was the gentleman's name do you remember i have it written I down wish too, I knew. but I wish his I knew. but he um he did the the systematizing of when it used to take people an entire day to unload boats when they when they docked or when it would take people a whole day to load boats um, yeah. w rather than that, um, the actual shipping containers that go on barges that are the rectangular ones that have very special special safety locks and latches on them right. so that they can stack, um, which now you can you can use those massive cranes at seaports that enable the barges to be just super quickly unloaded, loaded, um, whereas it used to take so much longer. And now the same thing, C1D1 Labs, pop up, pop up. And then yeah. you know you work with the architect designer to make that happen. Actually, this sort of modularity is, ex or just like we were talking about with motherboards as well, the modularity philosophy is yeah. huge even in first robotics with the kids that build robots to complete objectives on playing fields that mm. imc and 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 judge and, and game announce for they do a very similar process with modules inside of their robots that have to fit into very specific um size restrictions like if it was going to get shipped off as a rover onto mars or whatever um and i think actually you know Apple for their devices also has to have a, the you know this modularity. Comp it's such a famous example of like yeah. putting together the module 
it's a great thing for entrepreneurs to think about is like how can you how can you mo- modularize uh, and then become king or queen of the modularization of a component um, and then that way you fit into uh, Peter Thiel's philosophy as well, where you're basically the only one doing the competition hype. is for losers. That's right. I, I love, I'm such a believer in that. And too, and if we do, if it's okay, I think we should just do the philosophical side. If that's okay. I want, I have so much to Let's say about it. what you just said. And, Let's do it. and, and to just to go a little bit more on the Peter Thiel quote there, that's really where, when I look back on how I've because nobody because nobody's doing the this. cannabis architecting yeah there and you it, go and that's kind of what I and it, for that's me good. it was kind of a simple calculation I, I guess I didn't really tell too much of the story how I ended up kind of doing this and how I built a business that is so focused on this but some of it was serendipity like I I just happened to kind of get an opportunity to be involved with one of these projects and just saw something in it and maybe some of it was just the fun about learning something I didn't know much about. And just really deep diving and, and becoming somebody that was really well versed in it, like that was a thrilling thing to do. But I think on an intuitive level too, I saw, hey man, like if I'm ever gonna hack it as my own uh, designer and have my own design company, it's gonna be tough if I do one of the traditional things. If I do, yep. if I'm just doing houses, houses, I'm just doing offices, commercial. Because trust me, yeah. Alan, I've worked, I've actually had the opportunity for, especially Those with offices. Those markets are saturated. They are, and I've actually worked for you know somebody who's probably one of the great great office designers of the last twenty years, and then like you know the reality is is sometimes David go goes up against Goliath and wins, but it's kind of it's it's not most days, right? So how can I how can I do be intuitive and smart and strategic and savvy about how I approach this by picking a niche that nobody's mining yet or very few right. are mining yet? And that's what immediately resonated with me, you know, and it's that been enough loops. of a way that I could actually build something, right? You know, yes, that in that loops us also to the very beginning of the episode where we talked about the emerging market of cannabis and to sort of see um, what nobody else is doing and be able to fill that niche and the highest level so that you mm-hmm. basically become the cannabis architecting monopoly until and you become the goliath for a while until maybe at some point some david can come in and also try and innovate that kind of forces you to also see what they're doing because yeah. a lot of younger consciousness is really interesting they're I agree with they're you. entering into the space but you really have to have that macro level view um like you're discussing and to because you wanted to f- be an entrepreneur and you wanted to not be in the houses and offices space well, it, I mean, it's I, I enjoy designing those types of buildings. I'm definitely not saying that I don't like those things and enjoy them. It's just a matter of what was going to be the fuel that made this rocket ship take off. Are you going I just, to get the dozens you know of phone I mean? calls right away? There it is. Yeah, and you get the dozens of phone calls right away with what you decide. You nailed about. it. Yeah, yeah. and then this can act as an engine for all the other things that you want I to Dare I say a gateway drug. Dare I say. It's the gateway. It is the yeah. gateway, for sure. This is your gateway. A lot of entrepreneurs, when they talk about wanting to, the entrepreneur becoming an entrepreneur, as Cuban says, it, it's really important to find your gateway. That's and, right. And if if <clears throat> you have to scan the landscape of the markets 
to find your niche and your gateway in. Um, and then once you kind of become that Peter Thiel monopoly of the space and you saturate it with your brilliance and creativity and hyper demand of all of the people that are just like, oh, I'm popping up in Michigan. And he calls his homie in California and the homie in California is like, yo, I've worked with Studio Bliss. You got to work with them. Yeah. yeah. And that's 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 ultimately what will also fuel all of your other downstream desires in um, North Star potentials. Cause, and you know some yeah. of those. We've talked yeah. about some of them. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, the problem we solve for clients is we help remove some of the uncertainty in this process. The, the, the issue and the reason why we've been so robust is that your average person who's doing – you know, construction drawings for these projects or, you know, working with MEP teams and engineers, they just don't know, most just don't know anything about this project, these project types. The only way you would maybe know a little bit about this is if, if you were a classically trained engineer would be if you'd worked in like petroleum engineering or, sure. you know, yep. designed petroleum facilities. Because yeah. there's some of these standards yep. that are that makes playing out there, yes, you know, for reasons you can imagine, solvents, you know, hazardous materials, yes. explosion, hazardous liquids. Yeah. Yes, yes. Interesting. So but only like petroleum uh, engineers or like refinery engineers would they would know about know about stuff like this. Yeah, yeah. Because even in like whatever aerospace or automotive manufacturing, there's not really these like explosion proof. Maybe, maybe there's there are some with motors and jets and stuff yeah. like that. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it it and I think any good business solves solves a problem right it, it that's at, at its core that's what we have to do is solve a problem for somebody yep. and i think why this works so well is it's very clear what the problem is yep. and we give a very clear solution, solution the problem is yeah. Yeah. you have this very specific set of codes and very specific type of facility we're trying to create your average designer engineer throws their hands up yep. or has to spend hours researching to figure the hell out how this works and they might not even get it right. 0.9% right? have one no and that's why you fill the 0.1% yeah, that, that nails it. And let's you. remove the uncertainty. Like these people are already spending generally large sums of money to build these facilities. Trust me. I mean some of these pieces of equipment themselves are a hundred grand, you know, just yeah. for one and that's only one piece, piece of, equipment of equipment in the process. Yeah. So. Yeah. These are not, yeah, I mean, we're talking sometimes millions and millions of dollars to build one of these facilities. So you don't, yep, yep. don't want to be risking, uh, you don't want to be taking too much risk with how you execute this. You know, you want yes. somebody who knows, yes. knows a roadmap. Yes. So. Um, would you say that there's other critical components that you want to show on the software before maybe we? Um, well, w I think without, with. Without the risk of just going too hyper specific and technical, which I think we could certainly do with this, um, but I, I think I think what we got what we needed from this. I think in terms of just um, explaining what's going on here in terms of the C one D one aspect, yep. in terms of these pieces of equipment, I think maybe taking a peek at some of these that are modeled in here like this. Okay, uh, let's do it here. I'll come this, here. I think, just to put a visual, just because we talked about it so specifically earlier, this is what uh, what they call a centrifuge, right? So this, yeah, it it's kind of exactly what you would imagine. It's yeah. this, uh, it's got this, you know, vessel on top that uh, you, you put the cannabis in and you put the solvent, you're piping the chilled, hyper-chilled solvent into. Um, and then you've got this motor on the right side here 
that's going to spin this thing really, really, really fast. Um, so that's and motor just, on the right that spins exactly. And it's not shown here in this particular little 3D model, but there's you know a control panel where you, not uh -huh. terribly different than a washing machine where yeah. you set the speed and those sorts yes, of things. Yes, yes, yes. Um, okay. okay. But uh, so that gives I think that gives you an idea. Um, cool. Do you think that's good on software on showing the on architecture yeah. and design? layouts and stuff yeah. I could show you a little more about documentation I mean cool. uh, these drawing sets like I was saying about the BIM aspect what we're doing is modeling the major 3d components and then in each one of these sheets that we're creating that are part of the drawing set for the cities and for the contractors we're taking cuts through those 3d modeled components and then drawing additional information over them so I think probably most of your, your viewers know what a floor plan is. I think we all know what that is. And here, you know, we have these series of different annotations on top of the floor plan that are telling you about, um, uh -huh. yeah, you so know, where annotation component is really what the city also wants to see as well. Yeah. I mean, they want to know beyond just where are the walls, you know, what is this wall constructed of? How is it attached to the floor? You know, where are these electrical outlets? Uh, definitely in this case, uh, the critical notes like this that tell you about what C1D1 components um, are, what their requirements are and where they are required to be. Yep. So this note about uh, booths are class one, division one areas, right? Um, oh, sure, yep, yep, yep. There's all these notes here with the numbers, which are what we call keynotes, which, you know, that's standard for all architecture projects. And those all tag to here on the okay. right side. So it's just a list. So, you know, you, you kind of file through and you see the one, the two, the three, and you can go over here and read about what is being called out there. You know, yep. in some case here, it was fix up the floor, you know, notes for the contractor, fill any cracks, refinish with epoxy, those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, with, with, without going to, I mean, we could okay. do a whole episode for sure on just architectural documentation, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's, um, I think that's enough intro to Excellent. explain. Excellent. Explain. Okay. Wow. Um, I was going to say, as you were going through that, um, you know, what was, what was really interesting that came up for me was this sort of idea that it's probably the other person that understands probably as much as you do is probably the guy at the city that, that's right that gets these files yeah <laughs> or girl well, whoever to be. at the city yeah. gets the files yeah and 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 in some ways we kind of feed them information to so one of the other people on the team that i work with on an ongoing basis you know the outside company all the consultants there's a fire protection engineer that writes a report that essentially describes the process that's occurring in this facility wow. it describes how you know line by line how does each component meet the fire fire codes you know that's yeah. its own thing I'm, I'm not really i'm not really touching much in regard to the fire protection aspect of it that's really in his camp but that yeah. but that report is a critical totally. element of the submission because the plan reviewer at the city can read through it and immediately understand what's being proposed you know they don't have to just yes kind of look at this like yes. centrifuge and kind of scratch their head and wonder what the hell that thing is you know so yeah it's it's um, kind of like what um what one of your 
um, close friends here, Alex uh, Knesevic, was introducing, as you introduced me to him and I got introduced to his work in ophthalmology, he also has a very similar process where the actual optometrists do a significant mm. amount of the upfront work for the ophthalmologist to be able to see the client in a way that's more efficient. So as you pass also the file over to the, the fire safety engineer mm -hmm. who has to review and provide their feedback to the city who then doesn't have to do the hyper nuanced analysis of the fire stuff because that was already modularly taken care of. Great. Yeah. yeah. Once again, that reference to the modular. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Which I, 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 you know, I don't, we didn't riff off it, but you know the line of thinking that we have around it, which we can do. We can kind of go down that now, or we can save it. Yeah, I think so. Of. I think we have so many things to also talk about regarding so. like consciousness and metaphysics, the nature of reality, nature of being, um, also maximizing human potential, next generation architectures, all this kind of stuff, philosophy, psychology, archetypes, uh, temperaments, all these types of things mm -hmm. that we can dive into more nuance on our second convo. That's a that, that'll be another hour. So, okay, we'll do that. Um, on wrapping on, on cannabis architecture stuff, um, I mean, yeah, the stuff we were talking about regarding that the modularity of that uh, metal booth component of the C1D1 labs, that's kind of like the great gizmo archetype that you were talking yeah, let, about. Yeah, I'll give a, a quick kind okay. of, I, I yes. you know, I think you and I are both philosophical people and Though uh, it's fun for me to talk in some sense to talk really technical and nitty gritty, I think I'm always going to be most comfortable in the philosophical space. So where this all kind of ties a bow on this is is back to this idea of modularity. And I kind of have a personal philosophy um, around that idea. And to first paint the picture, like you, you before you brought up the shipping container. So... I'm going to kind of unpack this idea in real time, but there's this concept that I like to call um, form factor change. So a lot of times when you see really grand leaps in innovation and in, in, in technology and in culture are when you have a form factor change. And to me, that's an example of that could be the shipping container. It could be the iPhone. It's this idea that you kind of have this new self-contained thing in which you've collapsed certain uses and efficiencies into. Like a lot of the innovation you see is is incremental, right? You already have the form. You have this kind of, you see this a lot in architecture even. Like it's been a long time since somebody questioned the wall. Like the, we only tweak the wall. We say, okay, here's a hundred different materials we can make the wall out of. But has anybody ever gone from first principles and said, can we make something that does the same thing a wall does philosophically that isn't a wall? Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean by form factor. So the shipping container was really powerful because if you understand the history of how shipping used to occur, it literally was, it was this really intense enterprise where you had this, you know, large, large um, set of employees at every single dock around the world. These longshoremen, like just, just there was longshoremen's unions. It was a whole um, massive market um, and a massive um, industry, and there was no standardization, meaning that you know every ship was different. Go ahead. I want to give the name because it's so important. Okay, because you you brought this into our consciousness. We need to give the name. Heath 
Tantlinger. Keith Tantlinger. Keith Tantlinger. Go look that up. Keith Tantlinger. Because that is such a profound innovation in the great gizmo space that we're unpacking. Keith Tantlinger. All right, please continue. Now that we've given the name, it was really important for us to get that name. I agree. Look yeah, it up. I think Keith that's... Tantlinger's innovation in shipping containers on barges. Um, 90% of all world trade happens by sea. Nuts. Alan, and Alan taught me that. I did not. That was something I was unaware of. And that's when you hit the ball back with Keith Tantlinger. Keith that's Tantlinger. Right. And I was like blown by that modular component. I love that. All right. I don't remember where I first heard about it too, but it was something that struck me because – it was one of those 10x moments. So you used to have this really kind of haphazard um, un, un, shipping and loading process happening across the world at every single dock. It was these longshoremen that were, you know, literally lifting individual crates, all different sizes. Like imagine a really messy mover. You know, nothing's kind of in standardized boxes. It's just, it's just really rough and tumble, right? And it takes forever. We're taking like, I, I you know, I don't want to say numbers because I don't know enough to say numbers, but it, you know, we were spending days upon days to unload even small boats, probably. Um, so think about our globalized economy now where we expect goods to be ping-ponged across the earth at such a rapid rate. 30-minute drone shipping. Yeah, yeah. And that's perhaps that's even the other iteration of this. But that would have never been possible with this old version of, you know, guys just pulling individual crates, you know, little box, little box by box, like the same way you'd – you know, you you move in your house. That's just completely yeah. inefficient. And this, it, it was this. What was brilliant about it was it was this super concise, super simple solution that that's almost so deadly obvious that you laugh to think that nobody thought of it before. Why don't we just create one box, one big box that we kind of use as the base module, and then every other system involved with the infrastructure of delivering these you know, delivery and unloading and, and, and shipping is all built around that module, right? It's, you know, every crane is pre-sized to be able to pick up a 40 by eight shipping container, 20 by eight shipping container. Yeah. You started with this module and everything springs out from that. Yeah. And the, uh, the incredible level of, fi- of efficiency that That's was delivered. Beautiful. I mean, we're talking the gentleman that invented this became probably a billionaire Yeah. because this just, I mean, he just, undercut the market right this was like ex- exponential it wasn't a little bit better such good optimization in elon elon musk's words you can't your new product as an entrepreneur can't just be a little bit better it has to be orders of magnitude better yep. because the way humans work right we're going to always default to the heinz ketchups of the world we're always going to default to the um the coca-colas unless your cola is 10x better people aren't going to look at it it's human psychology we go with what's familiar unless it's way 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 better Right, mm-hmm. people won't even notice. Yeah, but this guy changed the world. He's an unspoken hero. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yep, yep. And I see this Love pattern that. across. I mean, I could go on forever. It, it, yeah. it, it. There's an element of this that's a very kind of Western and American way of approaching things. Like, how do we create discrete solutions that can almost be tacked on to solve a problem? Like you saw that um, with an argument that was made by one of my favorite architectural uh, theorists. A gentleman named Rainer Banham, which I would highly recommend you you all look up. He's uh, probably not very well known outside of architecture, but he actually had quite a fascination and a fetishization almost of Los Angeles. He 
wrote a very iconic book called uh, Los Angeles, The Architecture of Four Ecologies, where he kind of distills the different infrastructures of L.A. and how they kind of enabled the city. Um, He analyzes the freeways, the beaches, the suburbs. Um, It's been a while since I've read it, so I I can't speak to it too well. But he wrote a shorter essay that was called The Great Gizmo, and it analyzed this kind of like American – um, almost decentralized, the American tendency to derive decentralized, discrete solutions to problems. You know, the archetypical um, example that he used was the bo- the uh, the um, the outboard motor that you use on a boat. Like instead of having to just you know come up with this custom thing for every single boat, where oh we got to consider like what's the hull width, what's the hull thickness. Where's the motor going to rest in the hole? Mm-hmm. Like this little thing, this little solution. Like we're just going to build this box that you clip on and it solves the problem. And it works with any boat and it, it creates mobility, you know. Yep. Um, and, and I kind of see that with the iPhone too, like this kind of self-contained thing that solves all these problems and kind of can be deployed for anything. Like it, it can be a video um, capture. It can be a phone. It can be an Internet search. But it's all on this like little handheld. It's it's yep. instead of creating these kind of custom one-off things to do all these little things, you create this really, s- you know, poetic solution that's all self-contained. Yes, um, love that. Yep. And that's what I see in the best designs. It's kind of synthesis. Yes. Yes. You know, but I love that. Yeah. The yeah, um, E.O. Wilson wrote that. You know, the the world will be run by synthesis. Yeah, and I'm, I'm such a yeah, believer in that. Totally. And you that's that's a huge perception augmentation to be able to see the way that you can turn things into a module that is so so incredibly fruitful for optimization i love that and And infinitely deployable you know something that Mm -hmm. is irrespective of the context in some way is going to work you know something that kind of has this rugged, almost libertarian sensibility to it, right? Like, you know, I, I the other example I think we talked about before we got on on live was about the covered wagon. Perhaps is like an iteration of this that it's mm-hmm. the covered wagon almost predated. You know, there's this kind of people drive around the country now in campers and this kind of hippie vision of you can go anywhere, live anywhere. Yeah. You know, everything you need can be put in a little box and you can live a, a truly free pioneering free willing lifestyle but the old version of that was you packed up this module of the covered wagon and that brought you to the new not the new world but the the uh, the western the the manifest destiny the western u.s you know you just packed that thing up and it, w- it was a one-stop solution to, t- to take your life from boston to La- reno nevada san francisco you know so i think you know it's there's something uniquely entrepreneurial, American, libertarian, free thinking about that, those kind of solutions. And they're very yeah. – there's a connection, I think, to decentralization that's happening now with currency. Yeah. All that yeah. – I, I think we're seeing that rebooted again, this kind yes. of strong interest in not having a centralized mechanism. You know, a train is, way, is the opposite of a, a covered wagon, right? Like you have to have – heavy infrastructure for the train to run on Mm. like there's a hierarchy of the engine there's the Mm. passenger cars there's the caboose like you need all these things you can't just buy just the covered wagon and hitch a horse to it and you know Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah Hmm. 
yeah there's yeah there's a lot of nuance because there's also kind of like this centralization component also to the iphone as well as much as You're right which is kind of interesting so there's a little like nuance there but yeah it's not a perfect that i think that one's not a perfect analog one, yeah but. but even then there's kind of a centralization in a sense component to even the like the boat motor or the the shipping container in the sense of it being kind of like patented as the only uh solution for the boat motor or for the shipping container and then everybody has to run through the centralized entity on that part of the train uh of the of execution but at the same time this sort of great gizmo um decentralization is very uh profoundly seen through my first tennis ball back to you when you were walking me through the keith cantlinger innovation was that it so profoundly resonated with me regarding data interoperability yeah, yeah. i'm glad you're bringing that example up and that really that that hit me like a ton of bricks it so made, my mind just was racing let, after that so smart let's uh, tell let's us about that Alex. just quick yeah. uh on this is that the same way that and I, I write about this in high level perception as well that the same way that you see the intercellular communication happening between two cells to be able to talk the same way that uh, on the micro level on the meso level mm -hmm. between two humans being able to talk or on the macro level between two countries being able to send goods to each other via barges across the sea yeah and if you can draw this kind of multi-leveled analogy between that you can begin realizing also that there are significant issues with data interoperability with the sort of way that in just in the united states you can take a domestic one with Google and Apple and Facebook and Amazon and Twitter and Uber and Netflix and all these big giants, Microsoft, because their centralized data is in a silo mm -hmm. and there's no intercommunication between them, interoperability of that data. Yeah. And if there was, we could gain a tremendous amount of profound insight. And yes and actually not only like visualize our own kind of synthesis of data which would be very fruitful but also kind of like pay into that process you know as an inclusive s stakeholder of our own data that is being centralized that to sort of decentralize it um become an inclusive stakeholder owner of it and for all of the unique insights to emerge through a beautiful vis visualization tool and by the way, so that was the domestic example. U.S. has the same problem that China does in that sense. China might be a little bit more porous between companies like Tencent and Alibaba and mm. DJI and stuff like that. Might be a little more porous Didi, et cetera, in China because of kind of just the, the actual fabric of the interconnection between companies and the state, that type of thing, whereas we don't have that so much. Um, and on a on a planetary level so rather than the domestic levels in the US and China on the planetary level that can be thought of like 
like almost like the United Nations is like the meeting place of 200 cells that go and meet at the United Nations that then have some sort of like an intercellular communication that occurs yeah to say something along the lines of like hey you know Congo right now is having um, issues with the amount of uh, deforestation that's occurring and will because they want to become more economically they want to receive the economic fruits and so uh, what we can do is instead of defore like Brazil with deforestation Congo with deforestation instead of um, having some of the perverse incentives around um, the destruction of our eco planetary ecology for the um, short-term gratification of economic growth, what we can do is we can provide a financial incentive for places like Brazil and the Congo to preserve the rainforests because um, somewhere around 30% uh, of all of the planetary photosynthesis that occurs that enables us to take the 20,000 breaths of oxygen that we take every single day is occurring from the rainforests and 70% occurs from the photosynthesis from the phytoplankton. It's profoundly important for us to keep our rainforests. And so, right. and there's a lot of biodiversity that can be found there that can also be uh, kind of like what happened with a GFP and jellyfish or with channel rhodopsin in algae, algae, algae for optogenetics or for um, other biotech advancements. There is a lot of biodiversity that we can leverage to understand um, where the next CRISPR-Cas9 is and things like that. So you definitely uh, don't want to wipe out biodiversity because there's a lot of unique insights that we could retain. So congregating on a planetary level the cells to be able to talk to each other and create these inclusive stakeholding data interoperabilities is super duper important and extremely undervalued and is the future of if we want to actually be able to attain star trek because i want star trek everyone really wants star trek level abundance but right now mm. it's like chimpanzees throwing poop at each other's faces hmm. on the planetary level and so you if you imagine the planet earth as a single cell um if the usa is the mitochondria and china is the ribosome and saudi arabia is the uh the golgi apparatus and uh, you have all these different cellular components they need to be able to talk to each other intracellularly, intra, right? So inside of the actual cell, they need to be able to properly talk to each other so the cell does not pathologize. The same thing is true on the planetary level. If Saudi Arabia and Russia and the Congo and Brazil and China and Japan and the U.S., and Germany, UK, don't talk to each other efficiently, we will have planetary pathology occur. And that's sort of what we are seeing right now is a lot of great success mixed with a lot of pathology. And the way to solve that is to increase our data interoperability, our communication between each other so that we can inclusively stakehold all of our flourishing towards that Star Trek future that we all want. And as we said in high level perception, that is the seed 
That is the nutrient of every single human getting the proper nourishment that it needs in order to flower and produce gifts. That's right. That's the essence. That part. That part. Wow. It's a very yeah. beautiful vision. Very yeah. beautiful vision, Alan. And, and I think it stemmed from that. Right. From that Keith Pantlinger, you know, bit on you can't just know that 90% of all world trade happens by sea. You also have to know that Keith Tantlinger made this incredible modular advancement that enabled exactly. uh, and that is he, interoperability. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and analogously, that that's the intercellular inoperability. Operability was that was that little module that that's kind of the transfer point between port A and port B. They can now communicate with each other because they have this standardized unit. Yep. The crane over there lifts a 20 by yeah. 8. And the crane over there also lifts a 20 by 8. So, so like they can the talk. crane in right. Oakland and the crane in Singapore exactly. is there the is. same style of crane that's picking up the same sort of style-sized container. And imagine yeah. that used to not be that. Yeah, it was Every box was a different size. Different size. Just, I think you said it was like in the moving truck. You know, in the exactly. moving just truck. Just imagine you have like that, a bunch the chaos of, of that, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, but on the scale of global um, shipping. And so this was... The shipping container thing was also a uh, a catalyst for globalization in a global marketplace. You know, without that, we would not have everything at our doorstep from Amazon. You know, whenever we need it, uh, it it was preceded all those other things that we think. You know, we kind of we I think some of us because we overemphasize or we you know we love technology so much and it's really at the forefront. Tech tech in the sense of um, software. That's kind of how we think about everything. But those innovations in the physical world yes. that predated Amazon, if those wouldn't have happened and fell into place, there could have never been Amazon, right? That's right, right. yeah. That interoperability. That interoperability. But, yeah. but the part I think you, you mentioned in your last kind of breakdown of this subject as well that I think we really honed in on was this idea of interoperability between data packets. Yep. Like, can somebody come up with a shipping container for data for it for personal data so that it, it there can be some sort of um, transfer of personal data or you know kind of how a person is using software their trends their habits their predilections it, can there be a, a module of that so that um, it can be shared between companies or nonprofits or governments in a good way ideally I mean there has to be of course some sort of ethical way to do this yep. but right now any data information that Facebook has about us as far as I understand there is not like backwards compatibility with that data um, however that's mined or however it's 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 tabulated that data can't be sent to the government or to a nonprofit and I, I don't think they can read that right there's not it's it's like an operating system difference like they're on Windows mm -hmm. metaphorically and then the other company is on a, on, on Mac OS right there's not there isn't that form factor uh, sameness. Yeah. yeah, and I would love to uh, give a shout out because you're speaking about exactly what we interviewed. We're both speaking yeah. about the subject. We interviewed John Battelle on the show, and he is literally currently right now working on a machine portability in data interoperability. It's fantastic. So it's a million, it's a billion dollar idea, in it, my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's doing that at Columbia right now. So I would highly recommend watching the episode if that's something you're passionate about with John Battelle, and 
I actually think it was called like data architecture. So that's very funny that we, of course, got to this within our episode about architecting. Uh, It's all really architecting, as we've um, philosophically said many times in our last week together, that architecting is absolutely not limited to houses and offices, um, but it's also... Um, in in essence, architecting is the way that you, on a macro level, can envision civilization design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's my favorite way to envision both in the physical and in the intangible world. Yeah, yeah, it's the relationship between parts and pieces. You know, yep. in any yep. discipline or in any kind of field pers- or pursuit. You know, yeah, like I think a company has an architecture, right? Like what is the relationship between HR and, and marketing yep. and the executive team? Yep, you know, yep. those that's intangible right. art, how do you architect? Sure. You know, yeah, how do you architect those relationships? Yeah. And that's, you another. Know, are they hierarchical? Are yeah. they, yeah. Know, how do they, yeah. What is the inter- interoperability? Yeah. And what's the interoperability of the communication? What's the blueprint to that? And, uh, as architecting is on the parts and pieces, I would, this is going to lead us into the next convo that, Good. uh, I would recommend also, uh, as you do look at parts and pieces, for people to also look at the whole. That's right. And I agree. And, and as you look at the whole, we're not talking about uh, the whole of uh, you as a person or the whole of your family or the whole of the, the company. We're not talking about the whole of the country. We're not even talking about the whole of the planet. Hmm. We're talking about the whole reality, the whole existence. The physical and the metaphysical. Yeah, yeah. And so if you can more frequently draw yourself into that space of, as has been termed, holism, the more that you you sort of bring yourself into that metaphysical space of, of... really feeling and experiencing the whole of everything happening simultaneously, that's when you can really begin to wander into some more slowly enlightening, slowly augmenting states of awareness and consciousness. And so, uh, Let's lead into that in our in our next uh, convo. Yeah, this was fire. Perfect. That was just so fire, um, guys. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. We love you. Thank you for tuning in. This was so profoundly epic. Um, yeah, we had an epic breakdown of architecting in general, cannabis architecture, the importance of the city getting some. Uh, explosion proof modularity there it is. in the components it's a great that's a great band name my god yeah. explosion my proof gosh. modularity wow um yeah so that was epic um i highly recommend anybody um who's basically getting excited about emerging market of cannabis and hemp to uh you know, really kind of take the perspective of what Evan did in the sense of like analyzing the landscape and then getting in on, a, you know, the Peter Thiele and competitions for losers, get in yes, on that totally. niche, on that niche. Um, and then and the, other, yeah. the thing I always push when 
to riff off what you were just saying, so I'm just cannabis adjacent. At the end of the day, I'm trained. My training and my studies were in architecture. I do design. You know, that's really where my core skill is. But what I tell any, anybody who's doing something, you know, whatever it is in the world, if you're a professional public speaker, you're a waiter, you're a driver, there's a, a potential way you can do that in a cannabis adjacent way. The cannabis industry needs every, they need accountants, they need, they need every single type of profession and type of worker that you would find in every other discipline right. or industry. That's right. But you're, if you do it specifically within cannabis, you're, you're hitching your thing, you're hitching your ride to a really rocketing ship. So that, that's kind of my sell, right, on that. No matter what you do, there's a place for you in cannabis, right? Yeah, so. that's interesting. I literally just imagined the the rocket ship of the emerging you're market taking off, and you're and you're like you're putting one of your the like those like grapple harnesses, hook. grapple, grapple. Hook. yeah, yes. just like clicking on and then like rising yourself up. So this is very important, especially for um, those that have been underserved and underprivileged yeah. in um, as they've been uh, raised. And for this could be your moment. This could be your moment. Yeah, so um, yeah, exactly. So so grab the reins and and uh, and and pursue entrepreneurship here. So that's epic. We had uh, some also some great breakdown with the great gizmo um, philosophy there. That was awesome. So Keith Tantlinger for those that really again want to kind of dive into that uh, data interoperability modularity. I love that. I mean, that's it. That's it, folks. Um, also, find the links in the bio below. You can find um, Evan Bliss's, uh, uh, we'll put your LinkedIn profile, your Instagram account. We'll put those down there. Find those links below. Also, um, Studio Bliss, we'll put some, we'll put some uh, info there soon for, that's for, right. for, for people. Some content. Some content. Um, and then uh, reach out to Evan if you want to uh, get more immersed in the space. If you're a potential client, uh, Hella, this is your guy, um, who's doing the combinatorics of the different cannabis architectures. This is your guy. And um, on in terms of on behalf of uh, simulation, as you guys know, um, you can find all of our links in the bio below. You know that we always recommend supporting the 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 artists the entrepreneurs the scientists the spiritual leaders in your communities and around the world support them and help them grow these are the people that are taking the big risks these are the people that are wanting to um, push the next code updates so support them become one yourself support them support simulation all of our links are in the bio below to support us you can also find the link to my most recent, uh, my first book, my most recent visual synthesis called High Level Perception. You can find that down there. The physical copy of that book will be available across all major platforms uh, before Christmas. So get excited about that. Fantastic. Boom. And that is all. Thank you again for your love. Thank you for your support. Thank you for watching the show. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking and go and build the future manifest your dreams into the world we love you very much thanks folks thanks for tuning in thanks alan thanks evan so fire there it is i love it, it la is. first episode in la wow ah uh, maiden voyage da, maiden voyage da, 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 wow. ooh, mm, mm. What, what more can i say well, welcome, welcome to, to la, LA. Uh. <laughs>